Hello and welcome to LiffyCast 2022. My name is Johnny Ianson and we are very excited to be the official podcast running alongside the Leeds International Festival of Ideas. Uh, as ever, this year's festival promises to inspire and provoke and agitate and entertain and maybe, just maybe, we'll do a little bit of the same over the next half hour or so. Uh, in today's episode, we ask the question, is social media ruling the world? There are very few people that could have guessed the impact of social media. Remember when we all joined Facebook in 2006 or started tweeting just a year or two later, uh, posting pictures of our dinner to Instagram in 2010? Who would have envisaged the global consequence of social media from interfering in elections to becoming a mouthpiece for terrorist groups, uh, but also mobilizing civil liberty movements and connecting communities? The genie is well and truly out of the bottle. There is no going back. So this is a beast that needs to be managed instead. So can we control it? rather than it controlling us. Uh, with me to talk about this is Josh Nesbitt, a software consultant with over 15 years of experience working in the web and on social media. Hiya, Josh. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, we're also joined by Anthony Rance from Wakeman's, a law firm in Leeds. Anthony's a commercial litigator that specialises in data breaches and cyber security. Anthony, how are you? Very well, thank you. And also Jess is here. Jess Farrow joined us, uh, head of content and social at Holston Group. Uh, she runs a team of marketing execs that manage social media accounts for businesses. Hello. Hi. Good to be yeah. So social media, is it ruling the world? Uh, is it, Josh? Let's, let's wrap this up straight away within the first five minutes. Um, it depends, <laughs> I guess. Um, I think it's, uh, it's the eyes in the user, really, in terms of how we, how we utilise social media and how we want to allow it to manipulate our actions online would be my short summary. I'm sure we'll get into it later. Yeah. I mean, from, from the perspective of the media... The big one was always newspapers, then it was TV, it's been radio, uh, Anthony, and social media is here now. Is, is social media the most powerful of all media, would you say? I think it's getting there, isn't it? It's, um, it's almost sort of had an exponential growth over the last few years. Um, certainly, um, you know, in the, in the commercial world, a lot of businesses are moving to the social media platforms and you can see users increasing year on year so certainly uh we're headed that way and can you run a business without social media now jess would you say no <laughs> but that's the website i would want to give people yeah, yeah. you're biased um yeah i mean it always used to be like linkedin was the only platform for businesses it kind of stuck in that realm whereas now you will find businesses having every social media platform available right down to tiktok yeah, yeah. so it is really expanding in that area are we too crowded i mean we i mean i think back to myspace for those of a certain generation um and the likes of friends reunited and things like that nobody could have i guess ever envisaged the size it would grow to but the volume of social media platforms too and you just wonder is there a finite amount of space in the market for social media i think yeah it gets to a point where it could be overwhelming from a business perspective we always tell people the more social media accounts have the more mouths to fill it's a lot of work to really build a great following and to build engaging content because every platform requires a different type of content you can't just post everything identical across each one it's a different audience it's a different interaction on every single one so you really have to be very specific in terms of what you want to achieve mm. if you haven't got that in mind you'll just post it for the sake of posting yeah 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 uh, let's start with some of the positives and there are a lot of positives obviously there are a lot of negatives as well um but from your point of view, Josh, I was reading a fascinating study in the New York Times, as I like to do, but often just so I look more intellectual than I am, <laughs> uh, is that the reason that people use social media is to share valuable and entertaining content, 
to define themselves in a way as well, of finding their own uh, identity, to grow relationships, to get the word out about brands and things like that that they support or causes they want to support. From your perspective, from someone that I guess has been an early adopter of working in social media, is what are the profoundly, overwhelmingly beneficial aspects of social media? I think it depends on the uh, the context you're using. And so if it's a business, it's very different for your own personal brand, your own persona is very different, isn't it? So it depends, you know, for the personal side of things, building a personal brand, having control over that and having the ability to interact with your audience is quite powerful. Uh, I think that's a very big difference from, you know, old, older styles of media where it was very much a broadcast style. It wasn't really a conversation, was it? Um, so I think the conversational aspect is the biggest um, benefit of most of the new platforms these days. Mm. Different platforms offer different things, don't they? So, you know, as you were saying, you know, you, the content you tailor on Twitter might be very different if you're talking on LinkedIn or if you're on Instagram or, you know, our own events. So Meetup, for example, things like that. It depends what you're trying to utilise it for. Yeah, yeah. You, you can't do any of that without sharing data, though, of some sort, can you, mm-hmm. Anthony? Even if it's just something like a picture of where you like to go for your lunch or something like that. There is always little bits of our identity that we have to give away. And it seems to me that that is the transaction for using social media because we take it for granted that it's there for free. I don't know if anybody would be paying much money to use social media, but they need something in return. And that something is our data. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we live in a big data society, don't we? And the amount of electronically stored information that's you know out there in cyberspace, again, just grows exponentially year on year. Um, and for me, I know you were kind of talking about positives and <laughs> to bring it back to well, the a, negatives a negative will come up fairly quickly. Um, so. is you know that is that is a real risk area, isn't it? The amount of personal data that's out there um, in an unguarded form, you know, particularly on social media, where people might not have um, privacy settings locked down. Um, that data is there, you know, for all to see. And you know, there's examples where you know unscrupulous people can have access to that data and use it for various nefarious purposes, like. Mm you know, um, cyber attacks. And you think about, um, you know, things like phishing, um, you know, they call it spear phishing, where they um, identify a particular target, pick up the phone, send an email, and know lots about that person. And, you know, some of that stuff comes from social media. So, yeah, absolutely. You just you need to be very careful about actually the data that you're putting out there in, in mm. cyberspace. Conversely, though, businesses need that data, don't they, Jess? That they use it so they can target the people that they think will want their products. Yeah, I think the data from a business perspective is basically the goldmine of what yeah. they want to use it for. I mean, without, I mean, LinkedIn's your best one because that has the most amount of data on anyone you could possibly have. Because Instagram is photos, it's, you don't actually have that much written contacts that can be scraped unless it's, you know, hacked. Um, um, and Twitter is the same. It doesn't really know that much about you. Whereas LinkedIn literally knows when you graduated, where you work, you know, where you live. It has incredible amounts of data, even to the point where it knows how far you travel to work. Like, because it has like GPS and everything. Of course, yeah. yeah so um, in the back end of that platform, there is like this insane amount of information, but it does mean we can create highly targeted campaigns and only target, you know, from an advertisement perspective, like a TV ad would literally target anyone who was watching the TV at that point, but a LinkedIn ad would literally be able to target a job title, an industry, you know, and very specific things. So it has the return on investment you'd be wanting, essentially, and it has a better chance of achieving that. So that's kind of the reason people would choose to pay to do ads and stuff on those platforms is the data. Mm. Well, let's let's stick with data and some of the bad sides of it then. Mm. Let's talk Cambridge Analytica. 
um, which people probably have heard a lot about over the past few years, worth revisiting the story. So this was in the build-up to the uh, 2016 American election. Um, Cambridge Analytica, well, Facebook said it believed that up to 87 million users' data was improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica, which was this company that worked with Donald Trump to help him target voters. Um, it centered around something which was the big five personality test, which people would take what they thought they were just taking a kind of fun little test online. It would give them their personality type. Uh, they were either open, it was conscientious, extroversion, agreeable, neuroticism. And they thought, oh, that's interesting. That's my personality type. What they didn't know that that was then being used by Cambridge Analytica and Donald Trump was using hundreds of different types of uh, tailored content to target voters to try and get them to vote for him. And there have been claims that also there was a lot of fake news um, used as part of that as well. I, I read a fascinating stat, and you might know a little bit more about this, uh, Josh, that th because it didn't just target the person taking the test, it looked at the likes of all the friends and families. Mm. And it could, with 300 likes, so whatever you liked in different photos and things like that, it was better at predicting your personality than your own husband or wife. Um, such was the accuracy of, of the algorithm. Algorithm. I mean, how does how does a company even start to program something like that? Where, where does that come from? That kind of um, approach to being able to target people. I, I guess in this example, you know, social engineering is nothing new, really. I think the the mechanism of social engineering with the Cambridge Analytica breach uh, or whatever you want to call it was. Um, interesting, not only for its legal reasons and, and, and whatever, but you know, it was in an environment where people felt very comfortable. It was passive, where they could just interact with things and build up that social graph of what they were and who they were interested in. Um, was it built initially to do that? No. Um, was it a really convenient medium based on the fact that they had a lot of the data points, like you mentioned with LinkedIn? Um, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a perfect um, storm, really. Um, but yeah, in terms of building out that, that so the software is not complex really. It's, really it's just building connections between um, data points right i think it's more interesting the analysis that happened post um, collection where it was more interesting which i'm sure you probably know quite a lot about as well in terms of how they utilize that data to then manufacture um certain political views and campaigns that would sway people in certain ways was it surprising to you as a lawyer to see the level of breach yeah uh sorry to cut in i uh, yeah no it was and it, it's really that shocking stat that you explained, which is it's not just the people who had the app and gave their consent. So obviously under the data protection legislation, you need to process data for a lawful basis. And one of the lawful bases is consent. Um, and so it wasn't just those users who gave consent. It then uh, you could get into the, the data of Facebook friends who didn't give consent. Um, so that was, that was quite shocking, I think. And the extent of the breach from that perspective. Mm. Um, and it, it drives to the kind of heart of, you know, the data protection led, um, landscape even, which is, you know, transparency. And if you're going to process someone's data, you need to be transparent about how you're processing that. And I think, again, that's one of the shocking things, which is people signed up for one purpose to then suddenly find that actually their data was, was used for a yeah. completely different purpose. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary to think that there was somebody just sat in their bedroom in New York taking a fun little test online, and that was then dictating the outcome of the biggest democracy on earth. Yeah. And, and to think that this started 
you know, 15, 16 years ago, it was somebody who just wanted a platform where people could interact with one another to then potentially yeah. bringing down democracies. It's extraordinary to think how much momentum it's gathered. Yeah. Um, but what, what's been the fallout from that? Legally, what have been the implications of the Cambridge Analytica? Um, well, various. I mean, obviously, I'm more familiar with what's happened over here. Um, and there is um, a series of uh, reports by the Information Commissioner, um, Information Commissioner's Office. Um, they conducted the biggest investigation they've conducted um, have, that's then um, span out various assessment notices, fines for people involved, for for the entities involved. Um, It's also kind of fed into really where the data protection landscape is going. Um, There were recommendations that came out of that process that then fed into the um, Data Protection Act 2018, almost giving the ICO more investigative powers. Um, and then more recently, we've got the data reform bill, which was announced this year. Um, and, you know, I've got no doubt that it, you know, it's going to feed into that as well. So um, I think what, one of the things that the ICO has commented on is that um, digital elections and, you know, that world that we live in, mm. you know, it's not going anywhere. We can't, no. we can't turn back the clock. Yep. So what we need is appropriate safeguards and you know, to understand that that, that can happen. And we need to kind of look out for it and, and, and put various measures in place. And when it goes wrong, um, make appropriate sanctions. Yeah. What, what kind of conversations do you have with your clients, Jess, when it comes to data and what they can and can't use and whose responsibility is to look after it? Yeah. So we do have GDPR um, com- uh, policies with every single one of our clients as part of just our standard contracts now, because everything we do sort of has what from. Um, some form of data if it's emails social media anything it really does kind of (laughs) derive around data now um so what we um do explain to them quite a lot of the platforms don't let you pull the data off now um so it has to be kind of hosted still on the platform like linkedin and stuff you can't just excel spreadsheet all Mm. these people's uh, contact information and do whatever you please with them you have to kind of keep it there and there is a lot of explanation but we do um say to them like whatever you choose to do on that platform you have to make sure it's relevant to that people obviously make sure it's not anything <laughs> nasty or anything you know that you know could be harmful in any way and you do have to make that clear not that it's it's not too much of an issue within the business world but like any sort of advertisements even we have one that's a glass manufacturer that does spirits bottles but all of their ads are automatically banned because it's alcohol right of course. <laughs> so there's even little like loopholes like that. So like even because they do not sell alcohol in any way, but it still bans all of their adverts. <laughs> um, so there's certain things. But yeah, for the data, we do make them clear that there is policies to follow and we won't do anything that doesn't follow that particular policy. Because I think if you just set that from the standard and, you know, if we are, you know, say it's a social media round or send into a landing page to get, you know, gain their email address and their job titles and stuff like that you know, every single one will be gated with a policy to say, this is what we're going to use it for. You know, we can market you maybe three times a year and stuff like that. All of that will be included if the person chooses to read that that or not, you know, that's on their side. But we do make sure that everything is compliant these days. Mm. Uh, As an extension of that, another big issue is disinformation and and fake news. Uh, Ofcom's most recent report showed that 50, well, half, 49%, half of people get their news from social media mm. now. So they're not going to the traditional medium anywhere near as much as they used to with radio and TV and BBC and where have you. Um, there is a, 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 a huge problem with that, obviously, as we've seen over recent years, 
of people just lying, mm. you know, whether it is about the anti-vaxxers and the pandemic, whether it is about Brexit, whether it is Russia interfering in, in the American election. I think it's 146 million Americans were exposed to Russian disinformation during the, the presidential campaign, which is an extraordinary amount. You're doing work within the company right now, Josh, yeah. about this which seems particularly relevant at yes. the moment. I can imagine they're very busy right Rather, now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this yeah. is logically. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, so, you know, very busy from, you know, Brexit all the way through to elections and, and uh, obviously with, with the war in Ukraine at the moment, there's um, a lot of misinformation and disinformation being spread online. Um, the key thing here being the intent. So I'm, I, I myself have definitely shared misinformation by accident. Yeah. Um, but the intent for me wasn't to misinform. It was just because I, I, I kind of took it as, as a scene, really. Um, so the interesting things is trying to break that down into where are these threat actors, who's trying to influence that information in a positive way or negative way, and start to try and look at those information environments and start to try and figure out how we can build safer spaces online, essentially, mm. or, or more kind of more accurate kind of facts um, that, that disseminates online, really. So it's been a lot of uh, a lot of the last few years. Obviously, there's there's only growing concern. There's a lot of um, bad actors out there trying to spread misinformation and disinformation. And how does it work then? So do, do people sign up to be with that company do, do, or do they just scan the internet looking for lies? Because I can imagine that's a fairly time-consuming job. <laughs> we do consume quite a large amount of data. <laughs> um, no, you don't really sign up. So there used to be a consumer side of the app where you could get, you can get facts checked essentially. Um, there's a large uh, kind of open source public directory of information that we're verifying or, or, or kind of proving to be true. Um, but alongside that, we work with um, you know partners, some of them are social media platforms themselves, to try and help ensure those information environments are um, not more sanitary because you'll never really be able to control the data in that way, um, but to try and highlight and, and um, action information that may be harmful for users of those spaces. Mm. Um, I, I don't know if you know the ins and outs of the way Facebook works, for instance, with its fact-checking. Mm. Are you able to explain a bit about that? So they do something similar. Um, sometimes they outsource some of the fact-checking technology to third parties, like logically. Um, you know, we don't necessarily work with them in, this, in that way right now. But yeah, essentially, there's, there's a lot of data to process. There's a, there's a huge undertaking. You're going to try and um, prove or disprove facts. So mm. a lot of the kind of large platforms do have internal teams, but they also outsource as well um, and how that information is shared you know there's a good mixture with logically of um, a manual um, kind of we call it human in the loop so we have AI and data science to help highlight and look at that data but we also then use humans to help train those data science models to make them more accurate and to make sure that they're actually doing what we expect them to right do. so, so do you is somebody sat there reading and then cross-checking with Encyclopedia Britannica. Or... <laughs> Not quite. So we have uh, what we call OSINT specialists, open source intelligence specialists um, that are IFCN um, accredited. So that by an external body, they're accredited to be um, partisan and they kind of reach a certain level where we know that they're not going to be influencing it in a negative way. Um, so as a result of that, we, we basically use those, those uh, individuals to validate what our technology is doing on top of that. So right. it's not manual moderation because yeah. there's too much data to manually moderate. And what we do use is those insights from those individuals, those experts, um, to help train those models to become more accurate. Whose responsibility is it, Anthony, to try and tackle disinformation and misinformation, would you say? We've seen the BBC employ its first disinformation reporter over the past couple of years. Companies like Josh that's working with Facebook are trying to do its own thing, but comes in for a lot of criticism for not doing enough. Is, is there a single body that should be responsible? Um, not necessarily. I think it, it's a collective responsibility, isn't it? It's it's the social media companies, of course, can you know need need to do more. Um, but then, 
you know, there's more onus on regulatory bodies to you know clamp down um, where you know disinformation is gets out of hand and you know censure and, and sanction needs to be brought to bear to ensure that people do more mm. um, so yeah I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say there's any one particular body yeah um, yeah well I, I was just going to say I've seen something slightly similar as well in um, on a much more ma- micro scale than obviously the, the war in Ukraine it's where um, you know we deal with defamation where people can defame individuals or companies on social media um, and it it's similar in that um, you know you need to kind of ensure that that's corrected and, and taken down. But for me, one of the difficulties with it is is, is the ability to post anonymously, mm. or at least um, you know not the, the correct person sort of behind a behind a screen, if you will, um, and trying to get to the root of that and, and then get that taken down is, is difficult because um, it does provide a, a forum for you know information to get out there that's not necessarily correct. I think. There, there is, I think, a couple of issues with, with that side of things, isn't there? There are those that, for whatever reason, when they're at a computer and they are just launching a load of nonsense into hyperspace, defaming somebody, yeah. they don't feel like it's the real world so they can say whatever they want. And actually, that doesn't have any legal ramifications when actually that obviously does. Defamation and slander you know, exists online. And then, as you say, the other side of things of those that anonymously do it intentionally, um, and how to tackle either of those. I guess the first one is just making people aware that if you slander somebody, even online, that is a very bad thing you will end up in court to do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there, there's almost kind of two streams. One is you can actually seek to go after the person who's done the defamation primarily. But as I mentioned, trying to identify that person to then how would you would you physically would you use the police it. to do that? Would you use the internet companies? How do you do it? Yeah, you can. Well, you can go. Um, uh, well, you always have to kind of go back a step. It depends how much information you've got in the first instance, because you might be able to find an email address um, and potentially serve them at their email address. Um, if the person is um, anonymous, there are court remedies where you can approach the internet service provider um, and try and kind of get, get to it that way and, and get a court order. It's called a Norwich Pharmacal Order, where they... Um, no that sounds the original, really original. Yeah, it is a really interesting... the Norwich Pharmacal Order. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting area of the law where effectively the ISP provider will then have to disclose information in relation to who the wrongdoer is so right. that you can then bring an action against them. One of the most effective ways I've found is actually go to the social media provider and if you serve them with a takedown notice, if it's truly defamatory or if it breaches their policies in some way, they can actually take it down from source. The other problem with that is they then might pop up with a, as a different user. So it's yeah, kind of like of whack-a-mole, yeah, where yeah, you're yeah. Kind of taking them all down. So, yeah, there's a, there's a number of, I guess, weapons in our arsenal. Um, but it's, yeah, it's not, it's not straightforward. Jess, how, how keen are companies to try and push boundaries when they're online? There's some great accounts out there that are very good at doing it. Like, I don't know if anybody follows Aldi's account. <laughs> Big fan of Aldi's social yeah. media account. They're excellent. I mean, if you saw the whole Colin the Caterpillar thing that was, yeah. that was ongoing. But there is a real chance to develop that brand identity that we spoke mm. about and also to make it seem like actually you are human or you can yeah. be funny or you can be edgy. But there, I guess, are those that want to try and push it too far and can end up finding themselves potentially in court. Like, do you advise on how far people can push it. I think, yeah, it definitely does depend on the brand itself. Yeah. Like you probably won't see an M&S doing what Aldi yeah. does because they're so, it just doesn't fit what their style is. And Aldi has always, as a brand, been that breaker 
there was all the top four supermarkets one and they've always been the rule breaker just turning up at just half and all the prices <laughs> so like they've always been that is their style and i think they have an internal social media team and that team is given a lot of rain so he like they can just reply to tweets they can you know quote tweets they can do what they want <laughs> essentially <laughs> but they will still have guidelines like every brand has like guidelines in terms of like what we consider to be our brand mm. but it is a case of you know is there you know people in the whatever teams it is so if they're outsourcing to an agency or if they're you know doing it internally what the sign-off process I guess is in a bit of quality mm. control because the end of the day that marketing exec or anyone in that team is probably not going to be held responsible for the tweet that they post mm. but you know higher up they will be because if it is truly something that has pushed the boundaries too far mm. it, it has to go you know someone has to be responsible for that so I think it does you know where that line is I don't know if anyone <laughs> like it's it might be a hard balance to play but it, it would only be for those brands that are probably more on that side and Audi is worked to their advantage like you wouldn't normally find brands laughing and joking about a court case on Twitter yeah but like <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's really worked for them and it's actually worked you know there's things like that that's probably worked more favorably in terms of the outcome mm. of that court case as well <laughs> because no one was on their side yeah um and stuff like that so I think it does work it's just you know there is that always thing like do brands should be it should be really political should they you know talk about this should they but I think more and more companies are because that's what they stand for and if that's what they stand for internally they're gonna yeah. say it because they don't care anymore and it's it's a representation of the people within it's not brands are brands yes but they will always be a representation of the people behind that brand so I think as long as that is strength you know is strong enough and you know it has that sort of quality control process I think you know, it should be okay. But, you know, if there are brands that do take it thought too far, well, mm. sorry, that's maybe your fault. <laughs> we are talking about them today, though, aren't we? And we <laughs> would like to point out we're not sponsored by any German supermarkets <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on this podcast. I, I wanted to talk um, about this idea of an echo chamber and the fact that social media works so well because as humans, we have this innate desire to be understood and for people to share our views. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's just what we want. And we want to feel that sense of validation that, oh, these guys think the same as me. They go to the same places as me. They like to do the same things as me. Um, but that also means that we don't have an experience of, of what other people think mm -hmm. and do and see and hear. And that's a dangerous position to be in, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not in the interest of any social media company to encourage that, is it? Because if we're online, and we see people doing the same things as us and we're in that echo chamber sharing those views, then we will stick with it and we want more and more and more. Mm. We'll spend more time on there. They'll sell more advertising space. There'll be more adverts in our faces. So it's not in the interest of social media to, to change this whole echo chamber thing, is it, Josh, in any way? Um, not to change it. I think, I think like in real life, we curate our own social circles and our interests and it's very the same on, on, on social media. Um, it, it, are there triggers in place to exacerbate those situations and make them more successful? Absolutely. Um, you know, if you're selling to a certain group, you know exactly the demographic you're selling to. That's, that's a powerful tool for the companies, right? So we talked earlier a bit about legislation, how we monitor these sorts of things. It's, um, it's like saying to any company, don't be evil. Well, they're going to be bad actors. So, so we need to really have you know, guards in place, you know, policies in place. Um, but equally, you need to be aware of when maybe uh, a platform is possibly benefiting a bit more than you expect from those scenarios. Mm. So 
you know, when you see, you know, everyone, everyone says about the Instagram, you, you mentioned a product and all of a sudden it's popping up on there. Um, you know, just be a bit more aware of maybe where some of these things may not be as uh, organic as it, yeah. as it yeah, looks yeah. like. Probably worth mentioning some figures at this point. Uh, last year, Twitter generated $5.1 billion in advertising revenue. Uh, Facebook generated, anybody guess how much? Have a guess, just a rough idea last year. 10 billion. 115 billion <laughs> in wow. just advertising. Do alone. <laughs> Don't do bad. Uh, and YouTube uh, raked in a whopping 28.8 billion. Just That's all just from adverts. So that just shows, Anthony, how absolutely crucial it is that they keep hold of us and yeah. they keep they keep us on these social media platforms that we're addicted to them because we use it they make a lot of money from it it's big business it's big business and i, I think i was i was reading that facebook's fine from the ico was 500 grand 500 or grand so it was the most the yeah, major commission some, some change yeah. isn't it compared to yeah the amount. i think it was 0.001 of its annual yeah. revenue. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah what well, yeah why why not carry on um so yeah absolutely it's like i say it's big business and it seems that there's every incentive to keep keep going the way they're going yeah but, um and I, I think just thinking about the way the kind of landscape is is changing the regulatory landscape as well the the new data reform bill um the, the information coming out of the government is that they're actually conscious that there's almost too red tape in one too much red tape in one sense and um some things have become a bit of a tick box exercise like consent which is actually hampering the smaller end of the um commercial landscape so the smaller businesses um so they're going to look at that as well and you know to to open access to everyone not just the the big companies yeah so um no but to come back to your, your initial question yeah i think there's every incentive um for social media companies to to you know, to keep us in um, interested, uh, and as an extension of that, but a particularly negative one is is this idea of FOMO, the fear of missing out. That I think everybody has experienced, probably most of the time, actually, when on social media, that everybody else is living the best life with their perfect bodies on a yacht somewhere with their beautiful people around them and their amazing clothes, and that's how their life is twenty four seven. That. In particular, Instagram comes into it for a lot of uh, criticism about this. The amount of anxiety that it creates. Lots of studies show that um, teenage in, teenagers in particular face greater risks of, of depression uh, than those that don't use social media. That as adults, uh, we become anxious when we're not getting enough likes. Um, that there is this world out there that we're not living and we should be living. But I think... I don't know because I, you obviously work in social media. I'm not blaming you for this in any way, Jess. <laughs> but but that's part and parcel of it again, isn't it? Is that aspirational nature of these guys are living the dream. I want to be like them. Yeah, I I definitely can see it from both sides at this point because obviously I have an Instagram account and at one point I did personally I agreed with the concept that it is harmful to you because I was following a lot of influencers. I was following a lot of accounts that sort of had you know quite skinny girls that obviously been promoting stuff around like diets and things like that but what made it worse is the ads in between were all yep. fillers salons that did obviously cosmetic surgery that sort of stuff and if you literally looked at that for even half an hour mm. I feel like that'd be enough to be like oh, yeah I probably should do something about yeah. this wrinkle yeah. Yeah. and yeah. like you did it, it, it was all absorbing and I did when I started to learn more about the algorithm from the other side as working in it as a business 
I did start to learn actually this is how they're doing it. So there's things that you can do to tweak the algorithm to kind of guard yourself a little bit from it. And like I called a lot of the accounts that I followed, like cut off vast amounts. And I started following people that kind of, there's a lot of now like new influencers, like that are more like body positivity and stuff like that. And just tweaking what, yeah, kind of have to tweak what you follow and like mute into every time you, I see like a advertisement that's like maybe starting to send me down that route, just mute it instantly. Like mm. mute every single thing. And it's really irritating that you have to click the little three dots of the corner, click mute, 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 yeah. and don't want to see this, don't want to see this. But every time you're telling it, you learn the algorithm is getting smarter. So you have to do it because naturally it's a way that will start to guard yourself from seeing that more harmful stuff. And it is hard. And like as a business, you kind of want to promote what you're doing, but it's also... I mean, our businesses, some of them are doing like satellite monitoring and stuff. So we're not really like targeting that sort of audience, but I can see it's hard from like a, maybe if it is like more of a cosmetic company and stuff like that, it could be hard. But I think a lot of that industry is trying to move away from that sort of advertisement because I think in, and there's a lot of pressure on Instagram to change its regulations. And a lot of that will include advertisements, what's allowed to be posted out. Because even Chloe Kardashian is a big example. She does the Herbalife. Yeah. Um, but now she actually, if you ever see a post, if you go on it, um, if you swipe, they, she now has to give um, uh, what's the sort of like hazard hazard information yeah. surrounding the product alongside every single post. And they also have to say it's an advertiser, a, com- yeah. a paid commercial. Yeah, so there's lots there. of things and that's going to keep getting stricter and stricter, I think. Yeah. I yeah. muted Kim Kardashian a while ago. <laughs> yeah. well, that's, that's really an example where it's quite lazy at Instagram because they're using users to train mm. the algorithms where yep. actually they, they can very easily identify harmful parts oh. of that. They know it's... Well, why would they? It's not in their interest, is it? Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the point. Yeah. Mm. That's the question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, we are just about to wrap up. Um, so I just want to go back round uh, once more. And I, a question for each of you. Firstly, as, as someone that's worked in this business a long time, and I guess... The answer is yes, because you're kind of doing it now with logically. But is is there a is there a group of people, at least within the social media world, that world that has a conscience that are aware of their impact, particularly when it comes to being negative and the power ultimately, Josh, that they have? These are incredibly powerful organisations that can change people's lives. Yeah. Do they take that responsibility seriously to do a good thing? Uh, I think so. Not everyone that works. I have friends that work for Facebook and all sorts of are they social evil? media companies. Are they terrible? They are, they are not, well, I've not, I've not seen them being evil. <laughs> um, but no, on a serious note, you know, a lot of people that just want to build good software and influence people's lives in a positive way. And, and you know, there's really interesting technology challenges that comes with building scale, the, the systems of this scale. So they're not all inherently evil. Um, I just think there needs to be more pressure on them, you know, in a public forum um, from from legislative areas and other the, to really make sure that they stick up to their part of the bargain, really, and to make sure that they don't act in evil ways. Um, and there's definitely technology solutions, but there's also really sticky and interesting human parts of that as well. So it's never a simple thing, mm. really, sadly. Which is why we'll always need people like Anthony to sue people. Exactly. Yeah. Break the always uh, here to assist <laughs> when you but need But we will always need, and I imagine it's certainly going to get more yeah. difficult for you as well yeah. as, as, as the systems get more sophisticated who, by people who want to exploit the system. Yeah, definitely. And uh, absolutely, the loopholes increase as, as regulation increases, the, the loopholes increase as well. And just the fact that all of that data is 
there's so much data and every every day month year that goes by we're almost dealing with more data and it's trying to get your arm, arms around all of that and um see the wood for the trees really i guess but um yeah no absolutely um yeah, it keeps me in a job <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just then finally from you um Social media probably is ruling the world to a certain extent, mm. but it can be used at least for good, would you say? Yeah, I definitely think it can. And I think the more people are aware and the more that people, the audience wants that as well. I think the audience is pushing back on what's happening and if it is harmful, if it isn't good for them. I think there is, and the audience will be the driving factor behind what does happen at the end of the day because people want to target that audience. So I think as long as people do keep being aware of what, you know, might be wrong and pushing back and, you know, demanding better of the social media platforms. But yeah, I think that definitely will be bigger. And yeah. better. <laughs> uh, take control and keep pushing the mute, mute button, I think is the uh, yeah. life lesson for all of us today. Uh, thank you so much for my guest, uh, Anthony Rance from Wakeman's. Uh, thank you so much, Anthony. Uh, Jess Farrow from Halston, thank you very much as well. It'd be great to speak to you. And Josh Nesbitt as well, software consultant of over 15 years experience. Thank you very much. You. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you here today. And do join us again for the next episode of LiffyCast. I'm Johnny Ianton and we'll probably still continue to be after this. Lovely. We finished, Simon. <laughs>